Race doesn't limit you from anything. It's all about I feel like they learn about race from, I'll, I teach them. You can inspire about who you are with somebody else that looks like you. And love who you are. To love This is In My Skin, a podcast about race and childhood. I'm Adam Flango. As we continue to work on some exciting new episodes, we wanted to remind you about the Pride Speaker Series. Twice a year, once in the spring and once in the fall, we host an evening of conversation about race and young children featuring experts in the field. Our next speaker series will welcome parent, author, and founder of brownmamas.com, Muffy Mendoza, to the Homewood branch of the Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh on Thursday, May 2nd. Doors open at 5 p.m. with the event starting at 5.30. To give you an idea of what the speaker series is all about, this episode features the keynote address from our spring 2018 speaker series with Dr. Valerie Kinlock. Dean of the University of Pittsburgh School of Education. Dr. Kinlock spoke about building and sustaining a racially responsive community. Here's her talk. I want to thank you all for being here and for listening to me as I work through what I think this work means. And when I think about responsive communities, and I put racial in front of that, working through what I think racially responsive communities mean and what these communities entail. And I've been thinking about this for some time. And then, of course, we get moments that happen all the time. And some of these moments that happen sort of look like this. You know, moments that happen, and these are not new things that are happening across the United States in different types of communities. And so I took a moment to stop and to pause and to reflect on the reality that we have been living in very trying and uncertain times. And it's not as if this is new. It's not as if this is a new time that we're living in. And so yet the questions aren't necessarily new, but I really think that the solutions to thinking through these uncertain times have to be new, have to be innovative, have to be creative. And I think the solutions must also include a variety of people and voices and perspectives that move us to where we need to be. So I start here, and I invite you to start here with me. What do you see? Anger. Do we know where this image is from? Charlottesville? Virginia? Remember what happened in Charlottesville? What? What happened? What is it? And then do we know where this image is from? This is Ithaca College. And this happened in 2016 at Ithaca College when students said, enough is enough, we are actually at a point where we need change happening at the entire university, and because our request for conversations and change might not be happening the way that we think, then we're tired and we're going to actually stand against something. And in standing against something, they decided to gather, and they had conversations, and then they decided to have a student protest, locking arm in arm, and really thinking about what it means to engage in this work. Then we get these images here. What do we see? Violence. violence. Talk about that for a second. Who said violence? What else are you thinking when you say violence in these images? Trauma, Trauma. pain, yeah. anger, fear, hatred. Ha hatred. So this is a college campus to my right, and students are locked arm in arm. 
and a variety of students. And the same issue happening in college campuses across the United States, where students are saying, how do we actually respond to some of this stuff, quote unquote, that we see happening on college campuses inside of classrooms, particularly when some students feel as if they're not being paid attention to, or their deep concerns for change, for educational equity are not being addressed or met. And then we get to this picture, another image from Charlottesville. And when I look at this picture, I share this picture with a group of students I still work with in New York City and in Columbus, Ohio. And so I share this image with them, and we had some really interesting conversations about this image. We talked about all the words that you mentioned, anger and hate, violence and pain, trauma. And yet I said, what is our responsibility, especially in education, but also when we think about communities? to respond to what we see here, as opposed to ignoring it. How do we engage in these conversations? What's the type of work that we need to do? I hear some mm. Mm. The connection here. What is this image? Or where is it from? Coolest monkey in the jungle. We can get this in green, orange, and sort of black and whitish in terms of the sweatshirt. And so when I first saw it, I had some conversations with a few young people, um, very diverse group of folks. And <sighs> yes, like we're calling our kids animals. And we're not calling our kids animals only, but we're wearing shirts that say, this is how you see yourself because you're wearing it, and this is how other people see you because we've made this and produced this. And so then the message becomes something that becomes even more visible in public. And how do we begin to understand that institutional oppression exists, and it also gets reiterated in the types of messages that are conveyed about young people? And that's something that I think in many ways, the young folks I still work with continue to remind me of, even if I think I know it? Like, what is the message about our young kids, particularly in this image, a young black boy walking around? So we need to think about all of these various messages. And then painfully, I go all the way to my home state of South Carolina, and then I see this image. And not just to see the image, but to know the school district and to know teachers in this school district and to know teachers who've worked in this classroom with this particular person, this student. So what happens when I go to the school district and conversations a few months after this, this horrific, this, this incident happened? And just sort of trying to process and make sense with teachers who've been at this, in this particular district for a while. And when someone raises her hand and someone says, well, we need to understand a larger context. And I say, I don't understand what understanding the larger context means when I look at an image and I clearly see what's happen, happening here. And the response was, well, understand that if I ask a student to do something and that student doesn't do something, then what is my responsibility to ensure that everyone else in this class at least is on target and is able to do work? So I called the resource officer and this is what happened. Can you see the, the student in the background? Can you see? Like, I mean, 
I, I studied this image, I looked at the video when it happened, I talked with people there, and I go back to the image of what we see in the foreground right in front of us, but then there is a student covering up her face, and that looks like even more pain. And how do we process this type of pain happening inside of schools with young people? And we have to talk about inequities in education. And we have to talk about inequalities in our society. And importantly for me, when we do this work, we have to talk about these realities because look at the student. You know, and not to know anything about her, and not to know any of her struggles, and any of her lived experiences, and anything about her home life, which, student, which I know about. But to not know, for example, and to see this, and then also to know and to see it raises important questions for me about what we are not doing when we think about schooling and education, when we think about community engagement, when we think about the ways in which we need to have humanity and show humanity toward all people. When we take our kids and send our kids to school and we expect that they will be safe and cared for and nurtured, and then this is on the six o'clock news. And some of us feel so disempowered because we're used to this happening over and over and over again, and we are not processing violence and trauma happening to our young people inside of spaces where we're sending them to receive a high-quality educational experience. So we have this young lady, we have this officer, and yet we have this young lady sitting right there, covering her face, and that tells me that there are layers and layers of pain that for whatever reason, we, we do not talk about because this should never happen. And so this is where I start when I think about toward racially responsive communities. Toward racially responsive communities. And that means inside of schools and in out of school spaces. That means everywhere we are interacting with another human being. How do we have meaningfully rich conversations about what it means to be racially responsive. And if we are racially responsive, then what does that mean in terms of building and sustaining community with other people? And there are fundamental qualities and core values that guide my work. And I would say first and foremost is this concept of love. We have to have a discourse of love that we enact and practice in all of our spaces and in the work that we do. Not exclusively with children and young adults, but importantly with children and young adults inside and outside of schools. And if we can do that, then we can talk about humanization. And if we're not doing this work inside of our classrooms, I question what are we doing? If we are not going into education, for example, having a discourse of love, respect, and humanization for other people and their bodies, then why are we going into education? I firmly believe that, and that guides all the work that I do. So how do I start with this idea of love? I'm guided by it because that's all I know. You know, I, I come from a home where I had a father who didn't graduate from high school and who just experienced so much pain and hatred and oppression and went to school to actually find himself and could not and left school and decided you know, and I just learned this in March, you know, and told my grandparents that I will not go back to school and you can do whatever you want with me, but I'm never walking back into that dehumanizing place. I start with a place of love because 
He loved himself enough to remove himself from a dehumanizing context, and he did. But then I also think about my mother. You know, my mother, we're talking, my mother who is 83 years old and in the segregated South and not wanting to ever talk about anything dealing with that type of history because she saw it and she experienced it by looking and loving other family members who actually went through this, her father included. And so when I think about this, I should be angry, and I am, and I'm gonna be honest. However, I channel that anger through this discourse of love, because how do we love ourselves enough to say, I don't need you to love me, you know? I don't, because I love myself so much that when I walk into a school building and I see young kids, I'm not blaming them. I'm blaming a larger system of inequality and inequity, and I need to ask questions of people who are in charge. And that's how I start with love. I mean, I, I start with love. I took a slide out of this presentation that said, um, start with love and never hate because there is no room for hate. And I questioned that. <laughs> there is no room for hate. There's room for anger. There's room for pain. Because if we go back to any of these images, whether it's this image here, or this image here, or these images, or these images, there's anger. But for me, I frame my work as humanizing, and it's grounded in love. And this love is a type of love that requires us to dig deep and to reach for self-actualization, even when no one else is standing there with us. And knowing that I will never be fully self-actualized, but somehow in order to change a system that hates me, I need to figure out how to love myself unconditionally, even when no one else is standing with me, and I need to remember the history, and I need to figure out how to do the work that I need to do, because I want other kids, like this guy, to not grow up thinking that he's an animal. And that's where I start. And I think that's what we all need to do, regardless of who we are and where we're from. But how do we do this work? You know, I, I've been thinking about the work I've done over the last 20 years, for example, in communities with other people. Um, you know, the middle image is one of the final images that I took when, before I left um, New York City. Um, this image here is an image of students and former students coming back to take a class with me at Ohio State. And this image over here, um, I think it was when I was in Australia and working with just groups of students and people. And just thinking about what does racially responsive communities mean across the globe? And having hard questions that were asked. But I always go back to this place. And this is where I want to spend just a little bit of time. I go back to this place. I go back to New York City. I go back to Christina. I go back to a young lady who was a student inside of my English language arts class. And when I was in New York City, I was a professor at Teachers College, Columbia University, but I also took the dare of a principal at a high school in East Harlem, who dared me to come back into the classroom and to teach the English methods that I was teaching to my pre-service students at Teachers College up on, you know, behind the gated community sort of space. And she said, you talk about the work, you write about the work, why don't you come and teach the work with 12th graders? And I have about 30 of them for you. I can't pay you. So, you know. 
And because, and, and I had the nerve to actually ask her, I said, is this a deer or a challenge? And she said, it's both. So I went back for the whole year. I was teaching still a teacher's college, and I went back for the year, and I taught this 8 a.m. class five days a week to about 30 high school seniors. And I can't shake Christina. So I want to start there. I want to share with you Christina and some of the things that she taught me and how I then decided a focus on racially responsive communities is really important for all the work that I think we do, regardless of what type of work we do. So I start with Christina. And let me just share with you um, something that I wrote about Christina and I shared with her. So where do we even begin? Christina, 18-year-old Afro-Jamaican female from Perennial High School in New York City, stood at four feet five inches tall in mid-size heels. And she offered a stare that could cut through steel. This girl was on fire. She was on fire. Like, she had a tough exterior, a strong sense of self-confidence, an intriguing disposition that reflected both a combination of concern for self and a desire to be a responsible person, whatever that meant for her, on the one hand. But also this idea of disinvestment and disengagement. She walked as if to say, I don't care who you are. I'm coming through, and you don't have to like me, but I'm here. And that's exactly what she said the first day of class to me. She came through day after day within the space of an English classroom where I initially met her. And then within the out-of-classroom space, out spaces where I came to know her as more than just a girl on fire. She was a girl whose fire represented ways of surviving in a world of peers and adults who, as she told me, constantly, quote, misunderstood, criticized, and always dismissed me from elementary school until high school. So her first words to me were actually, <laughs> you know, in the kind of hand on the hip, sort of like, you tall? <laughs> Who is she talking to? And she looked at me again and she said, I mean, like, you so tall, I can't even see your, I just can't even see you. And I interrogated her comments, not as a joke about height. Granted, I'm a black woman who stands at six feet, a little more than tall, but also as a confession about Christina not being fully seen by people. So I did that sort of awkward laugh. <laughs> And then when I laughed, she exclaimed, you don't know me, I don't know you. If you wanna keep it that way, Miss Val Valerie, fine. But I'ma let you know straight up, this is me. You might not want me here in your classroom, but that's too bad. And then she did this sort of sharp side turn, you know, like as if you're like driving a car really quickly and cutting corners in a large Cadillac. And then she turned back around and she was like, you don't need to have me here but that's too bad because I'm here and I'm coming through. So there were two things that I decided I could do. One was to remain silent and lose face as the English teacher in a class of 30 high school seniors. Or I could choose to recognize that Christina was publicly performing a narrative of resistance to these long-standing feelings of resistance and alienation that resulted from her daily interactions from K through 12 with teachers and with peers. So I responded, nice to meet you. Guess we'll learn a lot about each other. And she, I remember this clearly, we talk about this still today. And she said, yeah, right, whatever, 
Ms. And that like B, buzzing, sounding Z. And she says, and by the way, you teach in this class, so you need to know up front. She gave me this kind of stare. I've been trying to practice it for like 10 years now. <laughs> she gave me this stare and she just said, you need to know up front. You ain't making me write. I don't write. We don't write in here. I don't write. And then she walked away and class began, but not before I came to recognize her fierceness as her refusal to name herself as a writer because of all of the hate and violence enacted on her from her teachers and her peers. I start there with Christina. And in starting with Christina, you know, when I think about racially responsive communities, I start there. Christina was forming this narrative, and I needed to decide what to do with it. And then there was this one class period. And this is where I want to offer one example of what I think racially responsive teaching and community building includes. There was this one class period where we were having a conversation. And Christina just, this is what she offered. I framed the discussion around Jonathan Kozo and a few other texts that we were reading, some spoken word poetry. And then she came in and she said, so you said to talk about race, place, and justice. Is that right? And it was a, is that right? Because I just want to make sure before I get you, Ms. Valerie, is that right? And I said something like, yes, that's what we're talking about. And then she says, but how are we supposed to do that when all of us, every one, one of us in this room know that schools don't really want us to talk about them things? They don't because then they'll know that we are being critical. And that, well, like Aureliano said in class yesterday, and she stressed that we know, like we really know. We all know these schools don't really care about us. So where is the justice? Why put us through the pain of talking about something that we don't have and might never even get? What do you do with that? That was one of the most painful moments that I've had particularly teaching in that school, in that particular class, with students who I came to really care about. But what do you do when you're reading texts and you're talking about race and justice, equity, engagement, and students are saying to themselves, and then they start to say to you as the teacher, why are we doing this work? Like, that's more painful to talk about these realities because we know, and yet we know that we live in a system and we go to school in a system that fundamentally does not care about us. And you want me to actually talk about that system when I have to live in it? And I had to take a moment and I thought about that. What does that mean to ask students to name the injustices that are in front of them, that many of them experience every day? And as we talk about these things with our students, my concern becomes, what type of language are we using to be inclusive but also critical? What type of engagement are we asking them to actually participate in as we're doing this work with them? And then how do we take a moment to pause, to recognize and acknowledge, and also to question and not leave behind what Christina is telling us? What comes to mind? Yes. Love the people, 
you can't save the people if you won't serve the people. And it all goes back to the first portion of the quote, in my belief, love, which is where you started. And so I say love and, and lead because when we talk about the root word of education, <coughs> edu, bring out the best in the children we're educating, which lead them, which they're leading them, bringing the best out of them. You have to do that. It's my, it's my belief you have to do that out of love. Thank you. I didn't even ask you for that, and it just leads nicely into what I wish I had said to her. Really. I, I, wish, I wish that I had said this to her. Um, and can I get someone to read the first part of this? Can I hear a different voice from other than my own? Can you see it? Paulette? Hey, black child, do you know where you are going, where you're really going? Do you know you can learn what you want to learn if you try to learn what you can learn? Someone else? Thank you. Hey, black child, do you know you are strong? I mean, really strong? Do you know you can do what you want to do if you try to do what you can do? Can I get someone to close it out? Thank you. Hey, black child, do what you can do. Learn what you must learn. Do what you can do. And tomorrow your nation will be what you want it to be. Thank you. Thank you all. So where does this take me? This takes me to some really pressing questions that I continue to ask myself about racially responsive communities. What are racially responsive communities? What might they look like? And can these types of communities support understandings of race inside of schools? Can these types of communities help us understand that race is a social construct? So many people think it's biologically connected, but race, race is a social construct, and what does that mean? But I also ask this question, how can we affirm positive racial identities by forming and sustaining racially responsive communities. And for me, I'm at that place where I wanna know what these types of communities can look like and what their roles are when we think about schools, when we think about communities, and we think about organizations. It is not just forming a community that's on the periphery, but it's forming communities that are central to us thinking about identity and race, equity and justice. And I also want to know what kinds of partnerships can be formed when we think about racially responsive communities. There are lots of work that inform this. I'm not going to go through all of this. But when I think about racially responsive communities, I'd be remiss if I don't say culturally relevant and responsive teaching has to be a part of this conversation. Culturally affirming instruction, instruction that is culturally affirming to other people. And then, Django Paris and colleagues have written about this new phrase, this new terminology of culturally sustaining pedagogy. And for him, this culturally sustaining pedagogy talks about how do we sustain the linguistic and literate and cultural practices of students walking into our classrooms? What might that look like? And how do we do this work? As opposed to trying to get them to learn dominant 
American English at the exclusion of all of the languages and literacies that they are already equipped with. So this is a lesson for me. It's Donna Hitcho. And Donna Hitcho I met about 10 years ago. And she was executive director of a community organization, a nonprofit. And this is what she talked about when, when I think about neighborhoods. Many teachers working in our schools in this neighborhood don't know the neighborhood enough to help our young people develop a pride about where they come from and see that there is good in their neighborhood. You know all those words that you talked about, diverse and developing and whatever? Here's sort of a hint about your assignment. My hope is that when you're in a neighborhood, wherever it is, that eventually you see words like loving, vibrant, cultural, fun, noisy, crazy, loud, whatever that you see beyond the missing pieces to what's really beneath and under there. Spiritual, familial, close-knit, all of those positive things about neighborhoods that are media hides, that first impressions hide. It's just like meeting a person. You know, the first time you meet somebody, you judge just by the appearance on the outside. But after you get to know them, you know so much more about their background and their history and their likes and their dislikes and their challenges and their loves. And it's the same way that you need to approach a neighborhood like Linden or any of the other neighborhoods that you might be working with. So Donna Hitcho was working inside of a community in Columbus, Ohio for about 23 years. White woman from um, rural parts of Ohio made her way eventually to Columbus. And I decided to partner with her over periods of time, many, many years. And it was Donna who came to one of the classes that I held at her site. And Donna was talking about race. And I was like, Donna, we've known each other for a few years. Let me hear this. And she actually was having a conversation with me about race. And she said, why is it that we can't talk about race? And then a student said, well, if you really want to know, why is it that we can't talk about racism and not just race? And then that led to me thinking deeply about what racially responsive communities should entail and what they could look like. Donna actually says, many people don't know the neighborhood. There's good in their neighborhood. Neighborhoods are loving, vibrant, cultural, fun, noisy, spiritual. We have a responsibility to see beyond the missing pieces. We need to see what is underneath there, what is beneath there. And so there's so many moving parts here that I'm talking about. But I want to just take this moment to say one lesson learned from Donna is that when we talk about race, we have to talk openly and honestly about race but we have to actually also do the work of talking about racism. Talking about race is not a way for us to then say, well, we just talked about racism. And all of the images that I shared with you in the beginning, it's not. Talking about race is talking about race and talking about racial differences and identities. Talking about racism pushes this conversation further for us to look at injustices and inequities that are happening in schools and education and in communities across the entire world. So we need to do the job of talking about race, but we also need to do the job of talking about racism. And so I'm out of time. 
but I need to give some considerations for the work. And so when I think about racially responsive communities, I think that focusing on these types of communities can do so many things for us. I use the word communities to be inclusive of schools and out of school communities just so we can, just to make sure. And I think that if we focus on racially responsive communities, then we get to really talking about intergenerationality. You know, someone made a comment earlier about the t-shirt, the, the sweatshirt, and I know because I've been here, and this is something that happened in the past and it continues to happen. How do we take that knowledge and experience and make connections to what we know now happening? I think racially responsive communities allow us to bring different voices and perspectives in conversation, and so we can learn, as someone also said, not to forget the history, but also to understand it as we move forward. This last point here about building partnerships, and we can talk about that some more, but racially responsive communities should have a commitment to building partnerships with different people, different organizations, different communities, and talking about the building of partnerships that are sustainable and that have an inclusive agenda of moving us forward. And I also think that we build racially responsive communities by, of course, listening and learning about race stories. You know, a lot of my students talk about their race stories. And so I began to say, let's document race stories and let's go into different communities talking about what race stories are and what race stories include. Doing that work with high school students and then taking that work to the university level to work with pre-service students, amazing. But that intergenerational part, doing it with high school students, with teacher educators, with pre-service teachers, and then inviting families in, the amazing work that we did, and we were all talking about racially responsive communities. We need to implement equitable structures when we talk about racially responsive communities. And we need to think about that last point. You know, it's that fostering linguistic, literate, and cultural pluralism as part of the democratic project of schooling. And that comes from Django Paris culturally sustaining pedagogies. But how do we do that, is the question. One way we do that, and this is my last slide, I promise. <laughs> One way we do that, um, and I need to take a step back so I can take a look at this. So in the center, I think some next steps and opportunities for all of us to consider. I tend to do a diagram that looks like this for a lot of different things because it helps me to visualize where I think we could go. When I think about the movement toward racially responsive communities, I think that we have to think about access, geographies, and innovation. So access means, do we have resources for different types of people to actually enter into this conversation? We cannot assume that everyone enters from the same space and place, or from the same experience. Some people might not have the language. How do we actually invite people into this conversation so we can start? where people are, as opposed to assuming where they need to be. This engagement piece is important for me because engagement includes a focus on curricular planning and PD. What are we doing with our students? What are we doing with educators? And then if we can think about that, we develop racially responsive community networks with families, with kids, with their larger social networks and ways where this work is not just happening inside of a school or inside of a community, but it's happening across different spaces. Resor we always need resources. And so thinking differently about resources and funding some of this work, but also sometimes digging into the community and in schools and saying, 
Why do we continue to do what we're doing the way we do it when it does not work for most people? And changing that particular way of doing things. And then finally, new frontiers and evaluation, and then policy is at the very top. I'm gonna to end by saying new frontiers. I believe racially responsive communities, if I had to give a definition, I think racially responsive communities are spaces and places for people to gather, to think deeply and critically, to engage in meaningful and rich work, and to think about what it means to live in a society as raced human beings, because we're all raced human beings. But what does that look like? What does that mean? And then how do we talk about building networks of people who have the language and the disposition and the critical stance by which to engage in this work to fundamentally change policy, to fundamentally change the ways our kids are not being educated inside of classrooms and schools, and to fundamentally change that narrative that my father had since he was a high school kid until his last breath. I hate school. I dropped out of school because I hated school and it was the most oppressive place and space for me. And then I look, you know, almost two years after his death and I think, I became a dean of a school of education, having a father who hated school. And when I say hate, I can't think of a stronger word. How do we actually change that for other people and provide opportunities to invite them into conversations where people don't hate school just as much as they don't hate living in communities with different types of people? But we come into conversation. And I end with the word love. We have to do this because we have a love of self. And we know that we can do better by our kids and by our families and by ourselves. Thank you. In My Skin is a production of the University of Pittsburgh Pride program, which stands for Positive Racial Identity Development and Early Education. Pride is part of Pitt's Office of Child Development. This episode is produced by me, Adam Flango, with help from Pride Director Aisha White and Pride Director of Engagement Medina Jackson. You can find every episode of In My Skin at our website, racepride.pitt.edu. Special thanks to our funders, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation and Hillman Family Foundations, for helping make In My Skin possible.